Is there a period of time in, in your life, your past life, that you consider perhaps something of a, of a golden age or a really good period that things were going well and you think, maybe if only I could kind of go back there? You know, maybe you think, you, you watch that movie, you think, yeah, I need one of those little DeLorean time machines so I can jump back to, you know, the 80s or the 90s or the 50s or whatever time you think is, is really great. Or maybe even a, a period of history. Here we are in, at, on the brink of the 500th anniversary. Maybe you go back to Calvin's Geneva. I could see cake. If I really wants to go back to Geneva and Calvin's day, something like that, you know. Um, we are in very difficult days, and I'm not talking about Irma coming upon us, uh, but broader than that, we are in a days, I believe, and you probably would agree, of a, of a real, of a moral freefall, uh, increasing social chaos, and some difficult days. Um, and the thing that believers need to be sure of is that regardless of what's happening now, regardless of what will happen, is uh, we can be confident, we cannot lose heart because the best is yet to come. The, the redemption that Jesus Christ has won for us guarantees that there's glory to come. Now, the book of Hebrews is all about teaching what difference the coming of Jesus makes, this, this new wine or this new epic of his death and resurrection. There are a number of words and phrases that uh, I tend to find a little bit irritating because they're used in my opinion, ad nauseum, and one of them is, this changes everything. You hear that all the time, right? Well, nevertheless, uh, as for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this does change everything. And because the Lord Jesus has come, those who know him, those who know the gospel, know that that gospel residing in our heart, residing in our minds, uh, produces a, a hope that energizes us with, with joy and with confidence because of what Jesus has done and because of what he will do because of the glory which is coming. Paul said this, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the faith that you and I are to have, forgetting what lies behind, but pressing forward, pressing to win that prize, to make it to that goal. Well, if you remember the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1, we read straight away that there is this radical new change. The, the author says, long ago, in, the, in past days, this is how God revealed himself through prophets and so forth. Uh, but in these last days, he says in verse 2, God has spoken to us by his Son. There's a new epoch, this new uh, era has come in. And he says, uh, wondrously, he speaks of this Son, who is not yet named, that he is the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, that very Son... Uh, rose from the dead, we continue reading, he has now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having the most excellent name. He has a, a name that's greater than angels, we see in verse 4. And the proof of that, he says in verse 5 and following, that it wasn't to angels that he made these, that the Psalms made these glorious declarations, as in Psalm 2, 
uh, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, and others. Now our concern is with five and following, and he gives the second, the second proof. I'm sorry, this is in chapter 2. That it wasn't to angels that he subjected the world to come, as we're told in chapter 2, verse 5. And we learn that this is Jesus in chapter 2, verse 9. Now interestingly, and this might be a little bit difficult to understand, the author uses, or he cites Psalm 8 to make his point. And it's interesting because that psalm was not originally, it seems, uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. In that psalm, which you probably know well, uh, the psalmist David uh, praises the, the glory of God as the creator of all beauty, of all creation, as well as man in God's image. And so the psalm seems particularly about Adam, the image bearer, the one who ruled over creation, the one who was in the garden and had dominion over all creation. He was crowned with glory and honor, and he had dominion over all things. And yet, as we know, Adam failed to exercise that dominion over a period of time in that he turned against God, he sinned, he committed treason against his king, and he, he was in a fallen state. He was in a sinful, corrupt state. He and his posterity and all creation was subjected to futility in Adam's fall. Now, the author of this letter applies Psalm 8 to Jesus then because David's claim that God has put all things in subjection to man finds its true and full and final fulfillment in Jesus, the God-man, the Son of Man, the Son of God. There's a parallel thought in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, and you may remember there the analogy that, that Paul uses between Adam and Jesus, uh, the resurrection chapters we sometimes call it. He says, for, for since by a man, referring to Adam, for since by a man came death, by a man, this referring to Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And then verse 25 for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And then verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet, which is the same uh, as we find here in Hebrews 2, verse 8, the very first part of it. So what Paul is telling us is that it is Jesus, the last Adam, who subdues the fallen, corrupt world and brings it back into subjection to God as it ought to be. It's Jesus who delivers his people and even creation itself, as we learn in Romans 8, from its futility of, of corruption and the curse. And Jesus brings that final reward that Adam failed to achieve. And so it wasn't Adam, it wasn't the first man, but Jesus Christ, the second man, and the last Adam, who will bring all of creation and all of God's people to the final uh, intended consummation because Jesus is the faithful Son of God. Jesus is what Adam failed to be. Now, for this reason, uh, both Paul and the author of Hebrews, who was certainly very familiar with Paul, I don't believe that author was Paul, but probably a colleague or someone that knew Paul uh, quite well, they assert that Jesus is now the reigning king. 
Jesus it now has dominion over all nations and all peoples. The, the author states it plainly. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Again, this is no longer true about Adam, but it's true about the second Adam. It's true about the Son of Man, Jesus. Now, I th- I'm sure you've been told this before, that that phrase, Son of Man, was our Lord's favorite self-designation. It's, it's, it's what he called himself or how he referred to himself more frequently than anything else. And the reason why is because of Daniel's prophecy back in uh, Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus taking that designation, Son of Man, to himself, he's saying that he himself is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. He is that king. He has that kingdom. If I can borrow from Herman Ritterboss, an author I really like, uh, he said, The Son of Man is consequently not simply an ordinary man invested with temporal and earthly dominion, but in the great eschatological drama, he is the man who has been given unlimited divine authority and to whom God's universal royal dominion has been entrusted. You remember when he first began... uh, ministering among the people, when he first began uh, his, his Galilean ministry, he said what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It has come. It came with the coming of Christ. He said also, if, if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is a present reality which was brought in by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we learned that that phrase, kingdom of God, or sometimes kingdom of heaven, like in Matthew, it, it, it is a theological and eschatological expression, and it refers to uh, the kingdom, which is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So to proclaim the kingdom has come is to proclaim that the Lord has brought about the, the, uh, his victory over his enemies and the restoration of the Lord's rightful rule. No doubt everyone uh, in this room is familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, especially with the movies. The books are a lot better because they always are. By the way, if you've only seen the movies and haven't read the books, and they're children's books, supposedly, but they're great for adults too. I read them as an adult. Anyway, you remember the story, uh, the first book, The Lion. Actually, I think it's the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it tells of uh, Aslan's victory over the white witch who had dominated uh, Narnia for a long time. Remember, it was always winter, but never Christmas. Uh, So Ben wouldn't like that at all. Um, And Aslan's victory was not a coup, but it was actually the the restoration of of Aslan's rightful rule over Narnia and his righteous rule. And that victory brought about the end of the tyranny of, of the white rich and restored the original beauty of Narnia. 
So God's kingdom has come, and Jesus Christ has authority, and all things are in subjection to him. So because his is the kingdom of Daniel's vision, it can never be destroyed. It is eternal. It is forever. It is greater than all other kingdoms. And if you are in Christ, that victory is yours. You can be certain of of participating in that victory if you are his. And that is our hope. That is our confidence if you are a believer, if you are in Christ. If you are not, uh, that is not your victory, not yet. I pray that it would be soon that you would also repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold, uh, there's not just a, a storm coming up from Florida. There's a storm of God's wrath. There's a storm of God's judgment coming. And there is no other hope apart from Jesus. Now notice chapter 2, verse 8, and the, the latter part of that, where the author says, it's actually the middle part, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now wait a minute. You might scratch your head and think, isn't this a contradiction? Everything is in subjection, but we don't see everything in subjection? What's going on here? Well, this is what some theologians refer to as the already not yet structure of the kingdom of God. Christ is now the reigning king. There is no disputing that, not from Scripture. But yet, our Lord's enemy forces are not completely subdued. Uh, Another way to put it from Scripture is Satan is bound. I'm not going to discuss what that might mean, but Satan is bound, and yet we know also that he he prowls around like like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So can Satan and and evil bring you harm? Well, yeah, to a certain extent. But because of Christ and the Holy Spirit, you can resist the evil one and you can remain steadfast in faith unto the very end because he cannot ultimately harm you. Yes, he may win an occasional skirmish, an occasional battle, we might say, but he will not win the war. Um. I'll just share this with you. It was, it was shared with me many years ago. I'm not really a, an expert on World War II history, uh, but if you're older than, what, 40 or so, you probably at least know about D-Day and V-Day, right? And you know how the beaches of Normandy were stormed on what's called now D-Day, and that put uh, re- really put the, the victory over Nazi Germany within reach. It was not yet the victory. Hitler did not yet, um, what's the word? Give up, uh, quit, um, uh, surrender. That's the word. Thank you. Uh, But V-Day was coming. And so between D-Day and V-Day, the enemy was all but defeated. Keep, Keep in mind, these are just analogies. Was all but defeated Uh, But yet, there were still battles uh, to be fought. And so we need to understand that the presence of evil in the world today does not contradict uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ. It does not contradict the kingship of Jesus Christ and his reign. What's going on? Well, it's certainly the will of God that history go on so the gospel can be proclaimed to all the nations in accordance with Scripture. So all the elect can be gathered in as one of our hymns puts it, uh, the gospel is going all, the, all to all nations, and God's intent is to evangelize the world. Uh, so yes, at present we do not see 
all things in subjection to him. But what do we know from Scripture? Again, do you believe God's word? We know that God has put everything in subjection to him. We know that he is the reigning king. We know that God is moving all of history to its predestined conclusion. There's nothing outside his control. And we know that he must reign until he put his, put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so for this reason, we as believers walk by faith and not by sight. Not every reality can be observed with the eyes or, or, or heard with the ears. The rule of Christ is something that the eyes don't observe, but it's something which faith understands. And the, and the future fullness of the kingdom is, is something for which faith patiently waits. Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. They're not going to say, oh, look, there it is. It's coming right there. Or there it is over there. That, that's not how it works. You don't see it with your eyes. You don't hear it with your ears in, in that sense. And so if you look only at physical realities, if you look only at, at things you can see or, or touch or taste or smell, um, you're going to be unbelieving. You're, at, you're going to be perhaps a, a confused, maybe distraught believer. You're not going to really understand because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It cannot be seen with physical eyes or heard with ears. It's not like other kingdoms. You can't go to, there's no Buckingham Palace. There's no White House for the kingdom of God. There's no address. Uh, there's no capital building. It's a spiritual kingdom. Uh, because of that, it's quite different than the kingdom of man. And it doesn't always produce the results we expect. There's no march of, of glorious armies to be observed we can't observe the, the wealth of, of some gigantic uh, palace somewhere. We can't see vast properties and holdings. And, and sometimes that can be perhaps a little bit challenge, challenging to Christians because we, wonder, we might wonder, you know, in these days of, of spiritual darkness and, and in some ways church apostasy and immorality and, 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 and the violence and all this social upheaval, not to mention storms like Army, you think, Jesus, where are you? What's going on? What am I missing? And we want to see visible results. But the problem with demanding visible results is we end up becoming this world-oriented. And we end up, like Israel of Samuel's day, seeking a kingdom that's like that of the, the nation surrounding us. And that's really... The problem with much of the evangelical world today, it's become this world-oriented, and, and so it follows the model that brings success. You know, how has Walmart or Home Depot gotten to be so successful? Well, let's do the things that, that they do and have that kind of success. It amazes me um, now how many years ago it has been since uh, Dr. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce has passed away, and I still I used to listen to him uh, all the time and, and read his sermons in his little Bible study books. And I remember when he, he talked back then, maybe 20 years ago, that even then evangelicals were accepting the world's wisdom and they were embracing the world's theology and adopting the world's agenda and employing the world's methods. All the more, I believe, 
today because perhaps we want a worldly kingdom. We want worldly success like Joel Osteen's church in Houston. We want this massive, impressive building and TV ministry perhaps. Um, But the world's way cannot be God's way. The two are antithetical. And the fact is the church whose goal is to become acceptable to the world will will in time lose its very soul. It will cease to be a, a true church at least because you cannot serve God using the world's methods and the world's ways, the world's agenda. John said what? For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. They are contradictory. They're antithetical. And our task is not to build a physical kingdom, but to call men to repentance and faith. We, we embrace the foolishness of preaching. Yeah, the craziness of preaching. And so the church doesn't seek at, or should not seek after political power, but pray. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul said, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The true believer will should never be comfortable in this world. If you are completely comfortable in this world, there's something probably very spiritually wrong going on. Either you're not a believer or you're very backslidden because this world is not my home, the old, the old song put it. We are, in fact, like the godly uh, men and women of Hebrews 11. Uh, we are strangers and exiles on the earth. We also are seeking a better place. We are seeking a, a homeland, a heavenly, a heavenly home. And so now we, we worship and pray faithfully. We exercise our dominion in our own personal realms, knowing the sovereign rule of Christ while we wait for a future day when we will see everything in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the author says, what do we see now? Well, we see him. We see Jesus by faith. And by the witness of the apostles, by the witness of the New Testament writers, uh, we see Jesus. Now, this is the first time in this book that the authors used the, the name Jesus, which was given to him by the angel when the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It means uh, Jehovah saves. And so we see Jesus, this, this Son of God, Son of Man, who took on human nature. Uh, the author, again, quotes, for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now remember that he had just argued that Jesus has a, a greater name than the angels. He superior to the angels, and yet for a little while he was made lower. He was made of a lower rank than the angels. And we call this his state of humiliation. And he, and, he, and he took on human flesh. He became incarnate man um, to accomplish our salvation. And we, we too often perhaps refer to that or think about that as only referring to his death. Uh, but the Shorter Catechism, I believe, is correct when it, when it, when it teaches this, this state of humiliation refers to really from, from being born of, of a woman uh, through all of his years as a child, as an adult, all of his ministry years, uh, subjected to the miseries of his life and so forth, uh, the entire time from his birth 
really from his conception to his burial was his humiliation. And yet his, his death was the epitome of his humiliation because in, in dying, that suffering uh, reached a climax. My God, my God, why hast thou for, forsaken me? Uh, he cried out as, he, as, he, as your sins and mine were imputed to him on that cross and his father seemed to turn his face, turned his face away. And so the author makes mention of this, saying, because of the suffering of death, uh, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was through his death and resurrection that he destroyed the power of death. He destroyed the devil. He destroyed uh, the, uh, the curse. Now, yeah, granted, this might seem a bit counterintuitive, a bit of a stumbling block for some, because how can, how can suffering and death bring life? How can that bring anything good? We don't think of death as bringing anything good, but of course we know that as evangelicals, we aren't, we're familiar with the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus had to bear the penalty for our sin in order for that curse to be broken, for death to be destroyed. Jesus had to take on the punishment, the wages of sin is death, so Jesus had to take on those wages on our behalf if you're a believer, if you're his. And so, as someone said, Jesus didn't come to make this world a better place, but to make a new world, to bring in a new heaven and new earth. We, he didn't come to make a better you. He didn't. But someday the Lord will rise. The risen Lord shall return and bring with him the new heaven and the new earth. And we shall behold him in all of his glory and splendor. He won't come in a state of humiliation, but a state of exaltation as the king of kings as the lord of lords and the last enemy which is death shall be destroyed and so paul paul exclaims oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ and that is why the only hope for salvation, the only hope for forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. It's not in religion. It's not in works. It's not in being a better you or being the best you. It's in Jesus. That is the only hope. And if you are not in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and turned away from those old ways, we're not perfect. Uh, yes, we are just and justified and still sinners. But I beg of you, plead with you, uh, you can't hope in your own works. You can't hope in your parents' works. So your parents being members of this church or something else. The only hope is it being in Christ. And so are you living in this world with eyes of faith, looking unto Jesus, beholding Jesus, seeking not so much a more comfortable life in this world that things might just go better for me? That's great if they do but they might not. But are you rather striving after righteousness and waiting for the final fulfillment of the promise of God? You know, when Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Revelation, remember how he says, uh, uh, he who conquers is, or the one who does this is a conqueror? I forget how it's worded now off the top of my head. But anyway, are you the kind of a conqueror? I was, I was reading Daniel recently, and in 1132, 
We read, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Jesus stood firm in all things amidst all the sufferings. And we are to stand firm in our trials because uh, even Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And that's the order that we must endure as well. First the cross, then the crown. First humiliation and then exaltation. We want the crown first. We want the exaltation first. But no, first we suffer. First we endure these miseries, these struggles. But you know what? This is what the Bible says. If you now suffer for him, you will, like, uh, you will also be exalted uh, with him because he is bringing many sons to glory. So can you be patient? Can you wait? Can you endure? Can you maintain hope? Can you not be afraid? At present, we don't see everything in subjection to our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who is crowned with glory and honor shall be revealed to all the earth when he comes again. And at that time, he will make all things new. See, because we serve a risen Lord Jesus Christ, he is victorious over all things. And because of that, the best is yet to come. So we do not lose heart. Amen.